Amen. Good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> again, we're starting a series this evening on the book of Psalms, so turn to Psalm 1. <laughs> that would be on page 448 if you're reading in your pew Bible. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. The word of God says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Heavenly Father, as we now open your word, and we start to plumb the depths of these messianic psalms. We ask that you would speak to our hearts richly. We ask that you would grab all of us and give us clarity of mind and insight. Grow us in our affection for our Lord. Magnify his glory before us. Teach us as you would have us to be taught. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the benefits available to you when you have children and you're still a child at heart is you get to use your children as a cover for your own unbalanced love of cartoons and other children's programming. One of my favorite such shows, especially when I really started getting serious about pursuing my faith in God, in a God-honoring manner was James Dobson's Focus on the Family uh, Adventure in Odyssey radio program. I guarantee you I can remember more about that program than Dorothy and both my children put together. The main character was a man named John Avery Whitaker, affectionately called Wit by everyone. Wit was the owner of an ice cream shop named Wit's End, and that's where everyone went, not just primarily for ice cream, but to seek his counsel. And one neat thing about Wit was he was a great inventor. And if you're wondering how this connects to our sermon, is because one of Wit's greatest invention was the imagination station. You see, the imagination station was a time travel machine, and with that machine, children were able to transport uh, back in time, I went with them sometimes, where they literally had the opportunity to either witness or participate in real time in the events that were occurring in the Bible. So what I'm doing here right now is I want you to come with me and jump in the imagination station and turn the dial to AD 30. And we're heading off to a road called Emmaus, located about seven miles from Jerusalem. And let's sit in and listen to a conversation between Jesus and two of his disciples 
one of them named Cleopas. We land, and immediately we hear these two just as recorded in the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, describing the events that had recently occurred in the life of Jesus, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. We can literally hear the disappointment and dismay in their voices as they discuss the things that they saw and the things that they heard. Then all of a sudden, this third figure pulls up next to them. And we don't know who he is. And it seems that they don't know who he is either. We hear him ask, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And at this point, they both stop and Cleopas turns towards him and looks at him like, man, what in the world is wrong with you? And he asks him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So without confirming the extent of his knowledge, the man replies by saying, what things? At which point they start recounting the events that occurred to him doing so again with an air of sadness and and seeming despair. And so after hearing them, the man who we now know because we are on this side of the cross, as the risen Lord replied to them saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And with what we can now tell was the greatest exposition of scripture we have ever heard. The man beginning with Moses and the prophets interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24, 27. So folks, as we now return to our seats, we know that Jesus went on with them and he ate bread and broke bread and then he revealed himself to them and then he disappeared from before them and their hearts were moved much as our hearts are moved when we hear the word of God. But as we now come back from the imagination because we can't stay there together because we're grown up now. And so when we remind it, I like to remind you or emphasize the fact that when Luke 24, 27 says He, that is Jesus, interpreted to them all that the scriptures said, starting with Moses and the prophets. He was including the Psalms. When he said all scriptures, he was including the Psalms. And for the very, so the next few weeks, in the evenings, starting with this Psalm, that very fact will be illuminated in our hearts and our minds. And so with these thoughts in mind, this evening I'd like to us to look at this passage under three headings. The man who fell short. The man who stands tall. And no, this is not a sermon about me and Christian. And the third point, two eternal ends. So first, the man who fell short. As I was studying for this sermon, I was hit by a stark reality. 90% of all the commentaries and other resources I accessed that includes the things that I, and even the things that I myself had said and written concerning this psalm in the past, all of them placed emphasis on a call for us to avoid unethical behavior and to redirect our affections toward an embracing of God's word with the then anticipated effect of experiencing success, both physically and spiritually, and then being counted among those who would experience eternal bliss. 
I believe the abundance of materials from the orthodox side of the fence, uh, which supports, they support that understanding and approach and lend credence to its veracity. But tonight I want to argue if you were to take only that which I just stated, avoid ethical behavior, unethical behavior, redirect your affections toward an embracing of God's word with an anticipated effect of experiencing success, and you left off two words, no matter how those words were articulated, two words, in Christ. Leave off those two words and you'd be missing the boat big time. The mistake you'd be making would be to see the man mentioned in verse 1, or woman, as you yourself by yourself. You're that person who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, of the wicked. You're that person who does not stand in the way of the sinner. You are that person who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. But question, are you? We know the measure of conformity one must have to God's law in order to be reconciled to him is 100% perfection. And when we look at this passage from that perspective, which one of us is willing to say they're good to go, that you're good to go? Which one of you? Which one of you, man or woman, is willing to say that you don't walk in the counsel of your own wicked thoughts sometimes? Often within the confines of your every own marriage, your familial relationships, your employee-employer relationships, and on and on. Which one of you can say he or she is perfectly avoids joining in the unscriptural ways of thinking and living that our society pressures us to embrace? And which one of you can say that you perfectly avoid scornful behavior, even as it relates to acting if there is no God that you're accountable to? You see, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the imperfect of heart says, and this is even the Christian, often acts and says he doesn't, God doesn't exist, or we act like he doesn't. So which one of you is willing to say that that never characterizes you? And what about the testimony of Scripture concerning this? In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul, writing from Psalms 14.3, writes, None is righteous. No, not one. Psalm 14 further says they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Romans 3, 23 says all have sinned and fall short, hence the heading, of the glory of God. The first Adam, as scripture refers to him, acted on the counsel of Satan who used the man's wife as a vessel of his ungodly counsel. And he brought the opposite of blessedness on everything, including us, so much so that David's testimony concerning himself, and by extension us, as found in Psalm 51.5, is, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is our testimony. And again, I challenge everyone that has or remembers yourself as a child with the questions at what age did you start teaching your children how to sin? And what age did you start learning how to sin? The answer is you too might have been wrapped in swaddling clothes or some other cute apparel. 
But inside the folds of those cute wrappings resided a little wrecking ball of sin whose greatest need was first to be taught self-control than how to do that which was right in God's sight. That's so for your own safety and society as a whole. The word blessed here in our text means supremely happy or fulfilled. In fact, in Hebrew, the word is actually a plural. It communicates the fact that there is either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of them. The verse might correctly be translated, all the blessings of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Again, which one of us has done this perfectly? Which one of us prays without ceasing, meditates on God's word day and night, and will be able to stand on our own because of what we've done? The answer is not one of us. And brothers and sisters, that is the bad news. But the good news is there's one who lived among the ranks of men, who fits the bill. And all he did and accomplished was for our benefit and the Father's glory. He is, according to Scripture, the second Adam, which brings us to our second point, the man who stands tall. There was no manifested gradation of sin in Christ. As you see here in the psalm, first there is a walking, and then there is a standing, and then there's a sitting. So there's a gradation of sin, a devolving into worse and worse and worse. There is no such thing in Christ. Instead, the scripture testify that he grew in stature and in wisdom, the wisdom that came from above. The first Adam took counsel from Satan. The second Adam was in a worse predicament since he was in the wilderness, not in a garden. He was hungry, not surrounded by plenty, yet he refused to conduct himself according to the promptings of Satan. In every instance, his response to Satan was directly taken from Scripture. You see, what was in him came rushing out of him without hesitation or thought. The book of Mark tells us that he immediately moved from one facet of his ministry to the next, remaining perfectly in tune with the Father's will for his life and purpose overall. In fact, Mark uses the word immediately 41 times to communicate that very fact. The apostle John in, in 1 John 14, or 5, 14 through 15 said, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now it seems that it's saying here, if we ask according to his will, and so my question is, which one of us has asked within the will of God perfectly each and every time? Even Jesus then, Jesus did rather, and thus every single request of his was fulfilled. Even when he asked if there were another way, if there was another way in the garden of Eden, remove this cup from me, is there another way? He said, but nevertheless, not my will yours be done. And so everything that he asked for, he received perfectly. So brothers and sisters, he is the tree planted by living waters. Let me remind you that scriptures articulated 
through the mouth of Christ himself refers to the Holy Spirit as a river of running water. The scriptures, specifically in John 3.34, tells us that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. He is that tree that brings forth life and renewal. He is that tree whose fruit never ceases to bear and whose leaves will not wither. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So you see, beloved, Jesus is that blessed man and our blessedness rest in him. Unless some think there is no validation for what I'm saying, listen to church fathers through our history. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, who blessed the church with orthodox doctrine that was used by Calvin and Luther and other reformers. Listen to what he wrote. This statement, blessed is the man, should be understood as referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Lord man who has not gone astray as did the earthly man who conspired with his wife, already beguiled by the serpent to disregard God's commandment. Or how about the testimony of Basil the Great, the man who championed the teaching on the Trinity that was used against the Arian heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325. He wrote, what is truly good is principally and primarily the most blessed, and that is God. He then describes this person as one who possesses an unchangeable nature, lordly dignity, calm existence in which there is no alteration, which no change touches, a flowing font, abundant grace, and inexhaustible treasure. If anyone in this room fits that description, see me after this sermon. I want to hang out with you. Finally, I give you Eusebius of Caesarea, the first church, the first Christian historian of the church. He wrote, our Savior, who made many blessed, offers happiness in abundance. He is the first of them who rightly are called blessed. The first psalm, therefore, must refer to him inasmuch as he is the husband of his bride, the church, which it seems the Hebrew word for man indicates when it is written with the article added. The article is the word the. It doesn't say a man. It says the man. And so that's what he's saying. So you see, this is the testimony of some of our church fathers who we gave great import to as having instructed the church throughout Christendom. So now as we continue to look at our text, we see that verse 4 immediately poses a, a contrast for us. It says the wicked are not so. It says this brings us to our final heading, to eternal ends. Notice we've moved from the singular in verse 1, the man, to the plural, the wicked, sinners, a congregation, that is a group of folk. So based on everything we've heard so far, we should be able to conclude that the wicked here is anyone who is not in Christ. Doesn't matter how nice 
you might think you are. Doesn't matter how much you've accomplished. Doesn't even matter how much religious activity you've been involved in. Here I'm once again reminded as I look at verse 5 of the words that we read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says that many will come to him proclaiming, Lord, Lord. And he'll respond by saying to them, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You see, beloved, the scriptures tell us that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But in contrast, the works of Jesus were and are as good as it gets, perfect in fact. Scripture teaches us that our ability to refrain from the gradation of sin is owed to him. For it is he who provided the comforter who is finishing that which was started in us until his day. And on that day mentioned here, the day of judgment, we will either stand or fall, be declared righteous or be condemned there won't be any other option. And the deciding factor will be in whom we're standing, Christ or something else. But may I remind you of the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is those who are in him then that will be able to stand. He is the one that is qualified to stand upright, and we are standing in him as his holy body, as his body, rescued, sanctified, and glorified. We are the righteous whose way he knows, and that makes all the sense in the world. After all, he is the one that enabled us to walk in accord with his counsel, to refrain from practicing sin, and to honor him with the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart. So you see, brothers and sisters, the way we have been approaching this text is not wrong at all. We are to see this text and understand that by the law, no man is saved. We are to understand that there is no way we can fulfill the law. And we are then supposed to look for something greater than the law. And that which we look at that's greater than the law is Jesus Christ himself. And we are to be driven then, yes, to live ethically, yes, to strive in this manner, but not to do so apart from Christ. We are to recognize that he accomplished this perfectly, and we are in him, and it is in him that we are enabled, that we are empowered by the spirit of the living God to live and to walk in this manner, to walk outside ungodly counsel, not to sit in the seat of the sinners, not to be scornful, not to be undermining, not to do any of those things because we are in Christ and we are imitators of Christ. He did it perfectly and we are called to do it. Yes, we are called to meditate on the word of God day and night. Yes, our purposes will be established, but they will be established insofar as there are God's purposes. That's why they all work together for good. They work together in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for calling us to live in the manner that our Savior lived and perfectly so. We ask that as we now move through these psalms and your Son is revealed to us more and more, we ask that we would see the magnitude of the grace that comes from your throne as revealed through his perfection and our lack thereof. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us and empower us even now to live ethically in the way that this psalm prescribes, to do so only as our eyes are on Christ and empowered by his spirit. We thank you for this word that you've provided for, to us tonight. And we ask that as we leave here, you would sink these words deep into our hearts, cause us to constantly acknowledge the Lord in all our steps and allow him to direct our path by the power of your spirit. Would you do these things to the praise of your glory and for the sake of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.